Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Let's just jump right into this series. Mark, we started it last week, and last week we were introduced to a character by the name of John the Baptist. As we know, John the Baptist is just kind of an appetizer, or for you foodies, a moose-bouche to Jesus coming as the main entree. And so this morning we will be introduced to Jesus, and let's just jump right into verse 9. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, we already know that Jesus identifies with us. He identifies with those he came to set free, that he came from heaven to earth, and he was born of a woman from a pretty, pretty low standing, and he was looked upon as an illegitimate child, just from a single mom and from an insignificant town with a really lowly job. And and he was just part of this oppressed people that the Roman Empire ruled over. And here, through baptism, Jesus is further identifying with those he came to save, those he came to set free from bondage. Now, it's not that Jesus needed to repent, as we know that he is sinless. There was no old sinful self that needed to be buried and resurrected, as symbolized in the baptism with water. And John the Baptist knew this, and so he's kind of thrown for surprise here as to why he should baptize Jesus. And he acknowledges this. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it's written, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So why was Jesus baptized? This may be um, a source of confusion for some of us as to why he was baptized. A possible explanation to this is he was further identifying with us. That those of us who acknowledge how far we are from God and that we desire to be reconciled with him, he's further identifying with these people. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bears all of our sin. He bears everything that separates us from God. And he identifies with us from before we were conceived to everlasting. And when he is baptized by John, it is a foreshadow of his death. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, 
I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus will experience death, but in his death will be life for those who trust in him. Now, let's try to think of it this way. For all of us who have been baptized from when this sacrament first began from all human history, think of Jesus plunging into those waters for everyone for all time where all of us, by faith, we washed our sins away into this body of water now. Imagine how contaminated that body of water is. It's like Lake Merritt. This is why no one swims there, and we don't do our baptisms there. I have a story for you. We used to rent to this church that was called Hopewell Baptist Church, and they used to do baptisms at Lake Merritt. So maybe that's why they're not here anymore. But for all of our junk for all time in that water. And Jesus identifies with that. He went into that. He stepped into our nastiness, our stank. He stepped into that. And all of our sins symbolically washed into that foul, polluted water. And he chooses to step into that to identify with us. Verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens, I would too if it was polluted water, being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And so this is a foreshadow of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the Trinity in all of its glory, all in this one snapshot. And in these verses, we see God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all together here in, in fellowship all there bearing witness to the identity of Jesus in his baptism. Now you look at how graphic Mark described this. Heavens being torn open. And so you see that this is a really deliberate chain of events. That when he came out of the water, immediately the heavens tore open. And the spirit descended on him like a dove. And so this is not some chance occurrence. It's not something that just randomly happened. This is purposeful. This is thoughtful. This is intentional. Now to get a richer understanding of these events, we need to look to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when God revealed his will to give someone a kingship or a priesthood or a prophecy, we're told that the Spirit descended upon them. So let's look at a couple of examples of this. There's many of them, but I'm just going to point out two of them. First one is in Judges chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. Here's a second one. Here's an example of kingship. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. When the people of God waited for the arrival of Messiah, they expected the Spirit of the Lord to be upon him. They expected that. Since the Spirit of the Lord was upon someone to be a king or a priest or to receive a prophecy, a prophet, surely the Spirit of the Lord would be upon Messiah who would be all three, king, priest, prophet. So the heavens tore open and the Spirit descended on Jesus. This was amazing. This was dramatic. But it's not entirely surprising to anyone who was familiar with the Scriptures. Like, yeah, this would happen. God's Spirit coming upon those chosen to be king, priest, 
or prophet, and they'd recognize God's spirit at work as this was consistent with how he operates. And this would be a confirmation as Jesus being anointed king, priest, and prophet. The spirit descending on Jesus was very significant to show who Jesus is. And Jesus will in turn baptize with the Holy Spirit. He died, he resurrected, he ascended, sent the Holy Spirit to baptize his followers to spread the good news throughout the earth. Verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Again, this would be amazing, awesome, but not surprising. Someone familiar with the scriptures may think of something like Psalm chapter 2. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And those expecting Messiah would see the prophetic scriptures just coming to life right before their eyes. So you see how important it is to study the scriptures so that we can grow in them and mature in them spiritually. That there is a substance to our faith, that it's not just an empty faith. For our relationship with Jesus to grow, we must study the Bible. It's one of the most important spiritual disciplines for us to practice. So that when we read, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased, we know that it is God's pronouncing, his announcing Jesus as king, priest, and prophet, who will take upon the sins of the world upon himself, as symbolized by his baptism, and he will die, he will resurrect, he will ascend to God and leave us with his Holy Spirit to share the good news. And it's here that scriptures like Isaiah 42 will come to life to us. Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And so we see how our theology drives our mission to do justice. It's why we do it. It's why we do justice. We follow Jesus who is about justice, who will bring forth justice to the nations. Mark 1 is not just the act of baptism of Jesus. This is a declaration of God, of his redemptive plan to reconcile the world back to himself, all illustrated in the water baptism of Jesus. Jesus who identifies with us in that contaminated, polluted water of sin, where many have acknowledged Jesus as Savior and taken part in that holy sacrament of baptism to recognize our sin and that we need it to be washed away. There he takes it all upon himself, where his blood cleanses us of our sin and reconciles us to God. Jesus is in that water with John the Baptist as the beloved Son of God, going into that water, entering into death to resurrect and declare those who trust in him to be holy and no longer separated from God. That's the picture of baptism. Now, for those of you who have not been baptized yet, I hope I've helped paint a clearer picture of this sacrament. So after this service, we'll be going down to Lake Merritt and (laughs) exercising faith, just as Paul, when he was bitten by a poisonous snake, you'll be fine. And so... But for all of you who call yourself a follower of Jesus, or even if you don't, do you see how significant baptism is? 
It's not about just getting wet. If you haven't been baptized yet, if you can see Pastor Steve or myself at some point in the future, we're going to have a baptism celebration at Lake Temescal on October 22nd. I know that's a step of faith too, but they've assured us that the algae has been cleared. So October 22nd, come and Bernard with The Way Church is going to be joining us too. And I tell you this because any of you who like barbecue need to be there. That's all I'm going to say. Verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. I don't know if you guys feel the same way about this that I do, but I'm reading this series of events, and I'm just saying, like, what? This makes no sense. I mean, you have this really awesome event that just happened to you, right? The heavens tore open for you. The Spirit descended, and God said with an audible voice, You are my beloved Son. Well, however God's voice is probably more like Morgan Freeman. But with you, I am well pleased. And then, boom! What happens? Driven out into the wilderness for 40 days. Being tempted by Satan, living with the wild animals, now get this, driven out by whom? What? You just came like a dove. And now you're like driving me out of here into with wild, I mean, wouldn't you think, party. Heaven tore open, Jesus announced me, beloved, you know, spirit coming, like let's party. Let's have a good time. I can make water into wine. Let's make this whole river into wine and let's just do this thing. But it's no celebration, no such thing. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. What is up with that? See, the conflict that we experience is not of flesh and blood. There is no face that we are contesting against. And I know that some of you might think that it's Trump or that it's Hillary, but it's not flesh and blood. There's something at the base that supports all the conflict and the strife. Paul wrote this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We all know there are underlying forces behind the people. A couple weeks ago, I went to Ferguson for Mike Brown's anniversary with a bunch of clergy from Oakland. And we've been doing this cohort together about urban violence for the whole year. And so we went there and I met a lot of the young people a lot of the young people that are part of this protest, a part of this discontent with what's happening, and most of them are not followers of Jesus. But this is their words, word for word. We don't fight against flesh and blood. They know this. They know this. They know there's a power of darkness, a spirit of evil that is behind what they're experiencing. It's not the Ferguson police. It's not their government officials. That the root of the conflict and the strife is not flesh and blood. And here we see Jesus driven into the wilderness by the Spirit, and here he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. Now Mark is pointing out what Jesus will be going through the rest of his life on earth and his ministry on earth. Everything that Jesus did 
driving out evil spirits, the healing of those with diseases and disabilities, raising the dead, everything that he did to bring about wholeness to people is pointing out to the fact that behind all of these earthly miracles, there is a supernatural darkness behind it. That behind all the hostility and unbelief, hatred of anything to do with Jesus, all lies in the fact that there is a power of darkness, a spiritual force of evil. And it traces way back. It traces back to Genesis. We look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And it's been this way since the beginning of humankind. There has been this power of darkness, this spirit of evil, and this is what Jesus addressed with Satan in the wilderness. When Adam failed in the garden to Satan's temptations, Jesus will be victorious in the wilderness against Satan's temptations. Don't have time to go into the first Adam, second Adam, but just to put that seed in your head and you can research some of that stuff yourself. And the good news of Jesus entering into this broken world to restore our relationship with God and with each other. And the good news of God is what Jesus proclaims upon returning from the wilderness. Victorious. Verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, verse 15 is a great summary of the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Let's unpack this a little bit. The time is fulfilled. So the prophecies of Jesus have come to pass. The Messiah has come after this 300, 400-year period of silence between Malachi and the Gospels. He has been anointed priest, king, and prophet, as symbolized at his baptism. The second phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, that God's reign is being established, that what he wants done will be done. And the people of God, they were so ready for this. It's been so long that they haven't heard from God. That intertestamental period of three, four hundred years, they haven't heard from God. And on top of that, they were so tired of this Roman oppression that they were experiencing. They were so tired of these religious leaders exploiting them. And they were ready to be just set free from this stuff. Something about our church. Are we getting this message across? That we're identifying with people's pains and their frustrations and their anger and what they're going through and the oppression that they're going through. That indeed the time is fulfilled and that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Meaning we who are in the kingdom are subject to the king. And for those in the kingdom, which is all of us, repent and believe in the good news is what is getting cross here. To recognize the reality of being in the kingdom of God and in that recognition, change. Change. This is what repent essentially means. It means change. Change your ways, change your Thinking, change your course, change your mind, change your heart to be consistent with that of God's. And it's more than an apology. An apology, sure, is part of it, but without change, it's not repentance. 
It's more than sorrow or this feeling of remorse. Because without change, it's not repentance. Repentance includes an exercise of faith. When we release control of who's in charge of our lives, because you can change your actions but still have a bitter heart. It's completely surrendering to God's ways, all of it. And so you see how repentance is not just a one-time thing. That repentance is all the time. Because we're so inconsistent with God's ways. And thank Jesus that he went to the cross, that he went into that water for me. Repentance is not just a desire to change, even though those things might be for good things. We might want to change and better ourselves as a friend, spouse, uh, some contributor to this world, or a child, or a parent, or a worker. Better ourselves in whatever way. And we can change to be better anywhere. It doesn't have to be at church. In fact, if you want to change, sometimes it's better to change outside of the church. I was thinking about, like, if you want to get in shape, but I think you can just turn up into circuit at church and you'll probably get in shape. So that's probably a bad example. But other things, you can probably get changes elsewhere. And how many people really want to be more like Jesus? Because that's a change that requires faith. And the idea of becoming more like Jesus is a nice one. It's a good one. And maybe something that people even really think about. But do we really consider who Jesus was, and when we do, do we really want to be like that? Because Jesus was not wealthy. He didn't have a great career. He didn't have children. He wasn't married. He was not from a great family. And yet we strive for those things more than we strive to be more like Jesus in the way he loved you and me. He died on the cross to take our sins from us and to bear it on himself. He entered that water and he got baptized for us. He pursued us even in our rejection of him. He gave everything for you and me. So unselfish. And the longer I live, I'm discovering more and more how selfish I am. Doing whatever we want, living however we want, without any regard to God coming as a man to reconcile us to himself. And one of the first things Jesus does in the early days of his ministry, which is further confusing me, is he chooses disciples to bring the good news to the world. And so here we are in verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Now people would have expected something different here. The time is fulfilled, right? Yes. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yes. Repent and believe in the gospel. All right. All right. Let's do this. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to walk along Lakeshore and pick some fishermen to change the world. What? I mean, are you getting this? Are you, are you seeing the picture here? John attracts people from everywhere. Right? Jerusalem's 21 miles away, they're coming. From the Judean wilderness, they are all coming. And the people that are there to witness this event, the heavens tear open, the spirit descends, a voice comes from heaven. Jesus battles Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. John gets arrested for being punk rock. Jesus proclaimed the gospel, saying, the time is fulfilled. 
The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's all building. This is like, yes, yeah, yeah. Fishermen, 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 fishermen. We're going to change the world. I mean, prior to that, your hopes are getting up, right? Like, yeah, our, this is looking good. And then you picked who? And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. I read this and I'm just like, I don't get any of that. You know those young people I referred to in Ferguson? You know who the leaders of their movement are? It's really like five, six young people. That's all it really is. It's not like a big group of people. It's just like five or six of them. And I met like four of them. They're leading that entire movement in that city and kind of like inspiring people around the world. One of them that I met, she's a single mother with no college education. Another is a guy who is a gangbanger and who still deals dope, like confessing this. And so he's with a very large international gang. And the guy that he is partnering with is from a rival gang. Have you guys seen the movie Colors? It's that, literally. One's from the blood and one's from the crypts. They're enemies on the street. So if they see each other on the street, they'll kill each other. But when they come together for this cause, all right, we're going to work together. We're going to do this. It's so bizarre. It is so bizarre. And it's much like that motley crew of early disciples during Jesus' day. It's so bizarre. It's so wild who Jesus selects to change the world. And if you think that God can't use you to change the world, would you please take a look at these fishermen? Because I don't think people were cheering these selections. Are any of you familiar with like NFL drafts or anything like that? Like, you know, when you're picking in the draft... For the first pick to change the world draft, we choose Simon. Like, boo! Like, Simon of Galilee? Like, he would be a no-name, right? It would be such a terrible pick. It's kind of like the 49ers not drafting Aaron Rodgers, right, back in 2005? Like, I, 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 Nate, I know you played with Alex, but I'm sorry. It's not the greatest pick for us. This stuff's not made up. And the first four people Jesus picked, out of anyone he could have picked, they're fishermen. There's no Ivy League education. There are no billionaires here. There are no venture capitalists. They caught fish. And it's crazy. If you sought to change the world, who would you recruit? You'd probably pick the founding board members of Theranos. That's probably who you'd pick. Right? Emeritus professors from Stanford and former executives from Big Pharma and banking and big-time financiers and former secretaries of state, the Bechtel family. Right? You choose these people, former senators, retired military brass. You choose them. And where did that get them? Anyway, let's move on. Jesus chose fishermen. Fishermen. And we know how the history unfolded. And this was miraculous. This had to be God. 
It had to be God. These guys were nobodies. But here's the thing about them. They followed Jesus. Simon and Andrew, they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. John and James left their father Zebedee hanging in the boat there and followed Jesus. They followed when Jesus called them. And you see what they left to follow Jesus. They didn't leave for a better job. They didn't leave for better pay. They left steady jobs. They left their families. Zebedee had a good fishing business. It was good enough to hire servants. And so you see how different they approach Jesus' call to how our world responds to the call of Jesus. When the fishermen were called, they left their jobs, they left their families. Nowadays, when people are called, we ask how we can get a better job from following Jesus or how we can improve our families by following Jesus. We look at all these different things before we go into it. When did the thinking shift to where following Jesus equates to financial blessing or family blessings? When did that change? Follow Jesus and you'll get a great job. Your business is going to prosper. You're going to find that spouse. You're going to have those children. That is not what he promised anywhere in the Bible. Actually, by following Jesus, for real, it's going to cost you going to cost let's get the politicized Jesus out of our head let's get the first world Jesus out of our head let's get the blonde haired blue eyed Jesus on a felt board out of our heads that's not the Jesus we're reading about right here this Jesus right in front of us to follow him it won't be out of convenience it won't be by accident it won't just happen This Jesus doesn't fit into our narcissistic world. He doesn't fit into our me-first culture, into our materialistic culture, into our civilization that believes that its values, technology, innovation, thoughts, politics are the answers to the universe's problems. What has the church done to the gospel? What Jesus are we presenting to the world? Is it the same one that we read here in Mark chapter 1? And often, he's not. Of course, Jesus can positively impact our finances and our family. Of course, he can do that. But is that what happened to these fishermen? There's something more. There's something deeper. There's something more profound happening in their hearts and their minds and the way of life that is truly transformative. It's deeper than a paycheck. It's deeper than family. It's this transformative change that happened in their life. I think something that holds us back from seeing Jesus clearly is just our familiarity with him. That we've just kind of heard these stories so many times that we know it. We know these stories in our head But the thing is, we don't know these stories in our heart, in our spirit. And this repetition has really dulled us to the real Jesus. To this Jesus of convenience, to this Jesus of personal blessing. What is happening here in this story is shocking. You look at who Jesus called and how these fishermen responded immediately. It is Unreal. 
Things that worked when it shouldn't have worked. It worked because this is God at work. This makes no sense as to why they would change the world. And the powers of darkness, the forces of evil, they listen because this was Jesus and they know Jesus has authority over them. Everything about Jesus and his disciples are not supposed to work in the eyes of the world here. Jesus, born to a single mother, to a poor family from a lowly, insignificant town with no career path. Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 46, asked Philip this question. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's serious. It's like, can anything good come out of Oakland or whatever? Like, he's it, like, wonder, like, what? Like, there's no way. Like, how can that change? And the first four leaders of the way of Jesus are fishermen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What do you think was happening in Mark chapter 1? This is all God. But what do we value? I think we often follow the way the world works and not the way God works. And we see this by the way we just kind of look at resumes or experiences and finances and education and how well someone is groomed and dressed and all these kind of things. But the way Christianity grew from its humble beginnings can be credited to no one but to God. There were no resumes. There was nothing. Fishermen. So why did Jesus come in such humility? Why are the first four picks of Jesus' team fishermen? To show that this is all God. This is all God. How do we portray our faith to the world today? I talk to a lot of pastors and sometimes the first things out of their mouth are their social justice issues. That's what their church is about, right? Like, that's what it's about when it needs to point to Jesus. It needs to point to something greater. Not that we are great, but that he is great. Let me close with John chapter 3, verse 30. He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, the way you work is not of this world, and we shouldn't be surprised by that, as you are not of this world. We ask, Lord, for you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, for you to empower us to do things that are beyond ourselves, that we wouldn't limit ourselves by the ways of the world, but that we would be open to how you work. In Jesus' name, amen.